Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting since he was in his 20s, when he learned how to harness digital marketing before it was cool. In his previous position at Thycotic CMO and then Chief of Staff, he helped guide the company through incredible growth and a successful exit of $1.4 billion. It's been a similar story with other companies. He's a best-selling author, serial entrepreneur, and he's a marketing advisor to startups. But he's best known for his high-velocity digital growth marketing strategies, which we're going to get into today. And he's coming from my home state, Sugarland, Texas. Please welcome our disruptor, marketing advisor at Insight Partners, Steve Kahan. Thank you, KJ. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So I, I referenced Sugarland as a state, but it really Texas is its own country. So <laughs> nice to have a fellow Texan on the show. Thank you. Okay, Stephen. So before we get into things, you know, you've been a disruptor pretty much all your life. You started at a startup before even startups were cool. You started in digital digital marketing before it was cool. What is your main ingredient for disruptive innovation? I think that causing disruption, what I've found having led disruption at multiple places is hard work. And to me, the most important ingredient is realizing there's no substitute for for hard work. I found that you just have to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. Today, for example, I was called by a, a venture capital firm was asking if I felt that there was room in the market for a company on the low end. And it was a very simple question, but really to answer that question fully, there would be so much hard work ahead of them. And what I found is, is that no great achievements are possible or sustained without hard work. And, and hard work is the price you'll pay for the success that you desire to achieve. I love that. That's actually one of my favorites. And I, I don't say that lightly. I know all my other guests are going to be jealous, but <laughs> it is hard work. And hard work does reap rewards. Hard work the persistence to that, you know, being mindful of your goal, doing the things that won, but hard work is always a key component. I love that you said that. So let's get into hard work with marketing because it is a painful process for companies and startups to really develop their marketing teams, systems, processes. It, it can be painful. Would you agree? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, what I've found is that overall CEOs, they're not happy with the return on their marketing investments. And to back that up, there was a recent McKinsey survey that said that 83% of CEOs said they expect marketing to drive most of their company's growth. Yet, according to the Harvard Business Review, roughly 80% of CEOs are dissatisfied with their marketing results. And so when you look at that, and you look at then the pressure on sales and marketing leaders, a lot of them are overwhelmed by revenue expectations they can't meet. And this affects companies of all sizes from startups all the way up to the Fortune 50. Clearly, something is broken. Clearly, something is broken. I've also noticed, you know, interesting that you say that. I've also noticed that CMOs really have a big brunt of a lot of the stress, right? And they don't last as long in their positions or aren't as trusted as their other C-suite counterparts. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I've seen uh, studies to that effect and I've and I've seen it in the technology industry where I've spent the majority of my career. And I think part of the reason for that is the way people buy has completely changed. And the marketing strategies that, that worked even a few years ago don't work quite as well today. And every CMO or CEO that I talk to they're looking for some amazing and incredible silver bullet that somehow is going to change the trajectory of their results. And I can tell you, KJ, that silver bullet rarely, if ever, exists. I knew you were going to say silver bullet. I just knew it. <laughs> what doesn't work as well? Let's get into that. Let's get into the status quo. And this is, is this mostly for B2B? Is this, I mean, B2B has definitely changed. Is it B2C or what are we sticking to here? It's both, it's both. And, and really what's changed is, is that buyers now rely on digital content to make purchase decisions. And let me just back that up with some statistics. So the advisory firm Gartner Group says that in this case, it's B2B. B2B buyers spend only 17% of their buyer's journey in meetings with potential suppliers. And then there's more data. So 62% of those buyers say that they develop selection criteria for finalizing a vendor list based solely on digital content. And think about it in your own life. I mean, if you were even going to buy a car, just, just take that, right? I mean you're probably not going to go from dealer to dealer and have that wonderful experience of speaking to 15 car salesmen, right? And probably what you're going to do is you're going to go do some research and do some Googling, right? It's what everybody does. And so 70% of those buyers say that buying from a website is certainly the most convenient way to buy products or services. And about 70% of those buyers prefer not to interact with a sales representative as their primary source of information. 
And so, you know, if you just take a step back and think about what that means is that you've got organizations with sales forces and salespeople who kind of do the same old, same old, right? And so buyers are looking for information online. They're educating themselves. Sometimes they know what's available and the products, unfortunately, better than some of those salespeople actually do. So they're they're doing their research. They're doing what we all do. They're looking at reviews, right? And so this new level of information parity during the buying process has totally changed the way marketers have to act with those potential buyers to influence them towards their products and services. Let's spell it out for our listeners, because I know that they're listening right now and they're like, yeah, same old, same old. They're probably one listeners, you know, thinking of a few items and another listener is thinking of a few items. Let's kind of put it in their face a little bit. What's the same old, same old that is not working as well? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the same old, same old is, for example, going to trade shows, getting those leads to a sales team and having that team follow up and hope that you're going to have a super high velocity go to market motion. Some of the same old, same old could even be online. It could be putting average content that doesn't really capture a buyer's imagination and, and attention just out and available, even in the sites where those buyers hang out. And think about it, right? So here's a great way for, for someone to, to, to put it directly to your listeners is when you go do your research online, how often do you love putting in your name, address, email, and phone number out online? If you're, if you're like me, the answer is like almost never. Only if I right. really, really want it. And it's got to be something I really right. It's got to be so like something that's so incredibly awesome for you that you're actually going to do that. If you think about what that means, then is that that is exactly what your situation is, is what those same buyers feel. Right. And so they don't want to put their information online either because they know what's going to happen they're going to get hounded by a bunch of sales reps that that they don't want to be hounded by right and so that is kind of the reality of the situation and and so you've got to be great online if you're going to consistently grow revenue and you've got to be able to do it by delivering great content and you've got to capture someone's imagination quickly i mean People scan online like they're they're not going to read someone's 15 page white paper that they have written and are so proud of. And it's often seconds that those buyers online make a decision whether or not they're going to take an action. Right. And so that's sort of what's changed. And unfortunately, a lot of marketers are not great at at tackling that problem, but they're they're not are, great at tackling the scanning problem that's going on at at, at at one understanding exactly who their buyer is, 
Secondly, creating incredible content that will capture someone's imagination no matter where they are in their buyer's journey. You know, there are some companies that they'll be like, gee, all we want is product trials. Well, not everybody's ready to trial your product, right? And that's, and that's okay, right? So you've got to have great content that naturally leads to one another across the buyer's journey that actually gets someone to act. And then, of course, being great on Google's because that's how a lot of people are buying these days. Like they're, they're doing what we all do. They're doing searches on Google and they see what comes up and you've got to be there. And then you've got to be great from that moment on forward. And again, a lot of organizations have not cracked that code. And that's why sort of their digital marketing results are not where they want them to be. Well, that brings me to the book that you just wrote and got released, right? High Velocity Digital Marketing. Is that right? Yes. High Velocity Digital Marketing. There you go. I'm reading it. (laughs) And you talk about these particular things and you talk about being great on Google. This is another part that people really haven't mastered, even though Google's been around for a while, right? Like, what is the status quo there? They master a couple of things. They don't really master it well. They pick and choose. They start something, stop something. What is the status quo there? So the status quo is everyone wants to be top three on page one, and then they listen to SEO experts, and they get three hours of of mysterious dialogue of what they need to do. And of course, it takes time and their results will change if and only if they hire that person. So let me give your listeners one thing they could start doing like tomorrow if they wanna become great on Google. When we would create this great content, we would have our SEO expert who would meet with the content creator at the beginning of the project and they would review with them we would call i would call them coveted keywords these were the keywords or phrases that were most often searched on and i always wanted to know where i stood on those by the way relative to our two top competitors so i always knew that by the way and so they would meet at the beginning of the project And the SEO expert would say, gee, you really ought to use these words and phrases in the doc. Then at the end of the project, the SEO expert would review it and make sure we weren't missing out on opportunities. And then once we got that content, we would expose it online so Google could do its scanning. It had the right keywords and phrases in there. In other words, we we weren't trying to outsmart Google per se, right? We were just doing good best practice. Of course, our partners loved our content because it made them look like experts as well. And so there was lots of great backlinks back to our site as well. And just that simple process over time enabled us to punch well above our weight relative to our bigger, better funded competitors and kick their tail as it related to Google SEO. That's an example of something people could do like tomorrow. 
assuming that they understand their coveted keywords, they have someone on staff that's managing it, and then put in place that process. And, and over time, you will find that you your results will really get, get great. That's so simple. It's almost too simple to be believed, right? Because what's out there is a lot of complexity. Yeah, I mean, there's like 500 page books on on SEO. And I'm not saying that there are, isn't some value in there. There is. But like sometimes people just want plain language <laughs> of what you could do rather than a bunch of technical gobbledygook. That's plain language someone could actually implement tomorrow. And if you're serious about being great on Google, that's something that you would do. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you talk about not talking about speeds or feeds, but you really talk about not just average content, but plain English, but also it's really the problems that your target audience is trying to solve, right? Number one rule, is that what you do, right? You talk about the problems. I don't think people do that enough. No, they don't. And so if you are gonna be successful talking about the problems, what you really need to do, what a lot of companies have fooled themselves to think that they have well in hand is that they, for example, fully understand the context of their buyer's world. And what I find more often than not is they don't. And so a great example of this is you mentioned the intro when I went to work at cybersecurity company called Thycotic, it was like 5 million in revenue. And at that time, I asked the founders and the management team and I said, well, who's our ideal target buyer? And they were like, well, gee, Steve, I mean, you ought to know that. I mean, we're a cybersecurity company. Of course, it's the chief information security officer. It's the CISO. And so I said, okay, great. And so then I started interviewing the customers and potential customers. And I had my first aha moment, which was that wasn't our buyer at all. Our buyer were IT admins who happened to be responsible for security as well. And so think about it. If I wanted to be great marketing online and I was spending a lot of time and money marketing to the CISOs, and I didn't get a return on my marketing investment and I had like a lot of other good practices in place and I had great content, for example, that targeted that CISO, our revenue wouldn't have grown. But like that's just one small example in the real world of an organization that didn't know who its buyer was. It wasn't that the CISO didn't need to be aware, they did but it wasn't who our buyer was. And then once we understood that, we took a whole host of different decisions that enabled us to scale revenue and scale it really quickly. Where do you find the disconnect comes in? Because that's a company that was at 5 million when you got on there, right? So, you know, that's not chump change. They were selling, they did have a sales process. Where did the where do you find the disconnect comes in with companies where they don't truly know their target audience? Well, one is they're not maybe their sales reps talk to the buyers, but 
the folks who are creating some of their go-to-market, their marketing uh, strategy uh, and execution aren't. So they're operating in a in some sort of closed silo, maybe in their office, but perhaps nowadays in their in their home office. They really don't understand that. And then I would say, secondly, is even if they are talking to the customers, they're not asking them the right questions. So a good example of that is even what we started talking about today, about the status quo, asking questions about the status quo, right? And so a lot of times when people are talking to customers, they're sort of like, they already have some presumption of what that answer is and they're almost leading them in a direction because just so happens their products happen to solve for the stuff in that direction but like when you think about the status quo a lot of times you don't lose business to a competitor you lose business to an organization just not doing anything right that the status quo was good enough Right. And so if you don't understand the status quo and the potential obstacles or limitations around it, that's just one example of a disconnect of of several types of questions that would help you understand that buyer in far greater detail to truly understand then how you could create a position and messages and content that resonate with them. So what did you do? That was a lot of deep digging for you. I mean, you talked, did you talk to prospects or did you talk to clients? Yeah, so here's a real example. Yeah. We were, and I'll stay with the same company, mostly because it'll help with the consistency in, in thought. Once I started to understand customers and, and Thycotic, was in a space that was called privileged access management, right? And so you have to understand the context. And so privileged access management is part of cybersecurity. And what it is, is every single device, every application, every network, every everything in your infrastructure has a password. Those passwords are known as privileged passwords. If you asked any of those IT admins who were also were responsible for securing the infrastructure that they were administering, or even the CISOs, right, who were creating policy, concerned about compliance, things like that, and you say to them, how many privileged passwords do you have? And 100% of them, literally, I'm not saying not 99%, 100%, had absolutely no idea. And if you don't know how many privileged passwords you have, how are you going to manage and secure them? And and the reason for this is because the infrastructures, they're complex, right? And includes cloud and all that. And so we had in part of, and so I knew that, right? Because I, I asked them. Part of our product, paid for product, was a discovery portion where it would discover those privileged passwords. So I was like, gee, what if we gave away the discovery portion of our tool for free? We create a privileged password discovery tool where it would discover those privileged passwords and then even within specific environments so we could target our marketing further like Unix or Windows. 
And then we gave a beautiful report that said, well, here are the privileged passwords you have. Here's the risk associated with that. And here's what you need to do to manage and secure them. And of course, if they wanna do all that manually, God bless. So that we started giving that away for free and that flew off the shelves. Then could sales organization or partners to follow up on that pretty much in a consultative you could say, what'd you learn? Like how many, like, did you learn about privileged passwords that you have that you didn't know about? And like, what's the risk with associated with that? Is that acceptable for, for y'all? Hey, would you be interested in learning how we might be able to help you? Right? So now they're not pushy salespeople, they're consultative salespeople. And that's just one of many examples that I could give of content then that perfectly fit into something that the buyers really, really, really wanted to know about where they would give up their personal information. And our visitor website visitor to lead conversion rate was off the charts, best in class, right? And, and so that's how you think about all of this. And I only would have learned that obstacle by really talking to our customers and potential customers to understand them almost as well as they understood themselves. Wow. And what about this? So it was like a freemium tool. And I'm I'm sure some of them got it and knew exactly what their threat was. And then they could go about handling it themselves. But you had their information and you could continue to educate them Right, exactly. Like here, here's another one, like, and this is like, there's so many ways to look at these free tools, right? So here's another one that also plays right into our PR strategy. So we knew that a lot of organizations were starting to get like, what's this privileged password thing? Like, what does it mean? So we created and it's it can't be marketing BS, right? It's got to be like good, legit stuff, right? So we created another piece of content called the PAM, Privilege Access Management Risk Assessment, where someone could come to our website and answer some questions. It would take about 10 minutes. And then they, and all this is automatically produced, right? So you don't need a, an army of people. And then they would get a grade, like they're in university, like A through F. And then they get this beautiful report with the grade that said, here's where you're doing well, here's where you're not, and here's how you should think about it. Now, just that alone, like people love that. And then we took it a step further. And so because we collected all of that great information, right, and we were the only ones in the world that had it, right, it's proprietary info, we could then slice and dice the data so people would also put in their name their industry like at the beginning of the survey the size of their company their geography so then we would send them a report to say here is how you compare versus your peers and it's human nature right like everybody wants to know how they compare and so again this enabled us so to like give a, a benchmark grade. Exactly. People could get this benchmark, this a grade. They could they got this automatic report that showed them how they were doing versus their industry peers, companies of the same size. 
And then because we collected all this info, we were able to create annual reports like the state of privilege access management what or slice, Potter. <laughs> right and slice and dice the data like uh, the state of privilege access management for financial services companies in the UK right and that got huge visibility it was we were able to communicate things that nobody else in the world was and that it fed our webinars it fed our blogs it fed our podcasts like and so like we had a constant stream of news like we managed all of this like we were managing like we were editors of the new yorker we had such a busy calendar that we would manage that but i viewed that all of this content had to deliver and contribute to lead generation pipeline and revenue as well as our visibility it wasn't one or the other it was always both and that was part of our secret to success you know that's really important i've always called it the promotional intelligence life cycle you have to have all you have to have collateral for pr you have to have collateral for marketing you have to have collateral for sales it's all part of educating and promoting you can't just have one right yeah, absolutely. And so like, if you look at as CMO, where I spent a lot of my time outside of, unfortunately, I had the sickness of getting up seven days a week and staring at my Tableau dashboards to see where we were. But I, I spent a lot of time on content, right? Coming up with ideas that would be really good ones, like the ones that I mentioned that would give us the results that we were seeking. And then there were other ways, you know, a lot of times people struggle with their like, oh, all this sounds great. Well, how do I come up with ideas for us? So to answer that, I mean, cause I know people who listen always ask that as the next oh, question. Man. And so what I would do is twice a year, I would get the best and the brightest in our company out of SEs, professional services, R&D, people like that. And I would send to them, sometimes in our industry, sometimes outside of our industry, like some of the greatest content that I would see. In those meetings, they would be accountable for each coming with one great idea. And so then we would prioritize them as a team. We'd select one or two. Sometimes I would need help building it, and it, that often came from that team. And then I also had a built-in cheerleaders because these were the best and the brightest. These were the people that others followed who then helped us get it out of the gate and were the cheerleaders promoting it. So that's how like, I had a constant stream of great ideas that didn't all have to come from me. It came from others and, and they loved it, right? Because I'd give carrots, like nice bonuses. I'd rather spend some of my marketing budget paying those people for their great ideas or building it rather than you know some various marketing tactic that was unclear. Because I knew that these were the things that would ultimately get us the results that we needed to achieve. Yeah, that's brilliant. And you're right, people are going to say, how do I start? Where do I start? This whole content development thing is probably one of the most daunting tasks 
in creation of marketing, you talk in your book a lot about repurposing, right? You give a lot of ideas in your book, but for our listeners, I can imagine them thinking like, what are the best pieces of content to start with? Where do I start? Well, it depends what you have and where your gap is. So if you think about sort of a a sales journey, right? I mean, a simple one is people want to be educated. So they're discovering things. They move to sort of consideration where they're furthering their education and starting to think about what are the products they should consider. And then they think about what are the products then they're specifically going to evaluate and then they'll buy. So it depends what you have and what you lack across those stages of the buyer's journey, right? And and so the answer is, is it's really specific to what is the situation for a particular company, but I will tell you this for sure, is that a gap in content in any one of those stages zaps the velocity of any high velocity digital marketing strategy. And the reason for that is those pieces of content need to naturally lead to one another. And so a lot of times people don't think about that. And that's how you string together marketing campaigns. It's how you build partner in a box campaigns for your partners. Each organization will be different based upon where their gap is. But regardless, you've got to be able to have content at each of those stages of the buyer's journey. Otherwise, you're not going to get the results that you seek. Yeah, that is a brilliant piece of advice. So tell our listeners about your book and how you got to, because you've been doing this for a long time. What gave you the epiphany that you needed to write this book after all these years? I mean, I'm only on chapter three. Right. There's a lot. It's 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 good. It's simple, but it's also dense. Lots of action items. You go from understanding your buyer to content creation to mastering Google, you know, all the way down to how to build your team. Well, the, did, yeah, the go epiphany ahead. that I had, which I'll will lead then into the book, is many years ago, before really digital marketing came into vogue and really full usefulness. I had an idea that's based off of some of these ideas that then I've applied into the book and applied that I've mentioned even with the examples that I gave for Thycotic, where it was a different company and we created what we called sort of the Human Firewall Council. And it was all about at that time where security policies, people really didn't know their own company's policies probably a lot still don't today the way they should. And we had a product that the CEO was going to just never launch, which which was all about testing whether employee population has read and they understand your security policies and where to target education. So we did a lot of the same type of stuff where we gave to CISOs free the ability for them to understand, does their employee and partner population actually understand their company's security policies and where are the gaps and where should they target education, right? And we gave it all away for free. That 
got huge results. And we started a blog in a community before really there was concept of communities. And like this community got huge. Sometimes I would look at it and people would put comments and I'd see comments, just thousands. And it was from people all over the world. And I would be in my office shocked thinking, wow, how did this happen? And so it was like the the network effect of people talking this up and digitally before really people thought about the network effect. And so that really helped us to grow a company that I was with many, many moons ago and build a digital marketing strategy that I've refined and sort of built an overall blueprint for, which is all about what's in the book, right? And so the concept behind high velocity digital marketing and that type of approach actually is profoundly simple. And what it is, is the quicker you convert digital content-based leads, which is what we've been talking about, into paying customers, the more successful your business, right? I mean, pretty simple. And that time is money. And the single metric that reveals the most about time and money actually is velocity. And velocity is commonly overlooked. It's rarely managed. And high velocity digital marketing focuses really at the end of the day, how fast you're bringing in money. It looks at how quickly you're generating leads, moving them through your pipeline, how much revenue then is produced by customers over a period of time. And so as a result, having high velocity plates a huge role in any business's ability to thrive and grow. And and what I've learned is, is all that like, yeah, okay, that sounds pretty simple, but like implementing a high velocity digital marketing program that actually moves prospects through your pipeline and converts them into customers quickly. It's easy to say it, but like a lot of companies struggle to do it well. And that's what the book is all about. So high velocity digital marketing is a how to do it, right? It's a book where people could actually read it and like literally saying, oh, okay, we're going to start doing that like tomorrow, right? So there's too many books that are fluffy and high level or theoretical. And that's just not me. And so I didn't feel like that would be valuable creating another one of those. <laughs> no. And so it's it's more of a how to digitally market and have it really impact your business positively. Well, it is very practical. You do have practical examples in there, how to's. It definitely is not fluffy. You definitely give a roadmap. And I say definitely several times because it's so true. You're quite a bit of a maverick, Stephen. Yeah, I think actually what I found is that it's not so much that, but what I found in terms of the book is, and it goes back to that silver bullet comment that we were both landing on, which was that people are looking for that, right? And and then you look at like a lot of the education that's out there and it's like on things like the four Ps, like product price, place, promotion. It's like, okay, how much more unhelpful can you be, right? I mean, (laughs) it's like, I mean, that's not going to, 
if you have pressure to grow your business and then someone starts rattling that stuff off, it's like your head could hurt. And so like for me, a lot of it is the fundamentals and and it's in those fundamentals where the wisdom that lead to results actually come in. So I view it as like putting those fundamentals together for people, connecting those dots and helping people understand like how to do it quickly. Because a lot of us are under a lot of pressure to, to improve results and like it's that's pretty stressful, right? And so allows people to have a go into things with a clear head and actually do stuff that's going to get them results. Well, it is definitely one of the best marketing books I've ever read. And I, it bypasses all that crazy jargon fluff that I think is, I don't know what it is, maybe just fixed ideas or false data that people adopt when they study marketing rather than the hard work of the fund of applying the fundamentals. I mean, your book really is the essence of hard work of applying the fundamentals and then you give people a roadmap. Yeah, I mean, like I also speak to in a lot of universities and and sometimes you have MBA students who have like completed just about completed all their business and marketing studies. And then we start going through stuff like this and they're like, it's like I've had people comment to me that they got more value in an hour than they have like in the semester. <laughs> so, oh like, my gosh, I hope a painful that's actually epiphany true. too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like an expensive, painful epiphany, right? Yeah. Even have you always been this sort of hardworking maverick? I mean, what was little Steven like? And how did you get into this particular aspect where you were just going to take digital marketing by the by the horns and you didn't know anything about it. Well, I'd like to say that it was all a straight line and all figured out. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say where it came from and where things started for me was for me I was like probably a lot of people where I would hear from my parents when I was growing up, I mean, work hard, get your degree, go to work for a big company, you work hard, they'll take care of you and, and you'll have a great career. And I remember all that happening. And I was about a year in at a big company after graduation. And I remember that I was looking at my bank statement, like staring at it. And then the pile of claims I had to process that day, stacking up in front of me. And then I was looking at my student loans on top of it and realizing when those student loans hit that I'd like basically have $50 left in my bank account, I learned that this wasn't working. <laughs> and so I, I asked myself a simple question many years ago, which was how could I earn a great living loving the work that I do? And where it, it all started for me was then making a diligent focus into the startup world where then I got a chance to get in a company to actually do everything because I was the only one in marketing. And uh, I, I always had the DNA string as being a hard worker, but it really started in the startup world. To me, it's it's a thrilling place to be. And, and you work with a lot of like-minded entrepreneurs who kind of are the same way. And so that's, I think, where it was born. And, and then it just grew over the years. And, and it's part of who I am, I guess. 
Yeah, well, you added to that hardworking DNA, didn't you? <laughs> and that's also another book that you wrote having to do with startups. What's the name of that one? Yeah, that book was called Be a Startup Superstar, and it actually did really well. It was geared towards young professionals and then those in university. And uh, and, and so that, that book actually got in the top 10 of business books at Amazon. And so it was that was a lot of fun writing because in that case, that book was more about why someone should choose a startup over a big company, how to select a startup. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs have good stories, but it's hard to separate one with a good story and a good chance to succeed. So how do you select good startups and where might you find startup jobs in places that might a lot of folks wouldn't think of? And then once you get there, what are seven keys to the C-suite? And so uh, so I went through 32 what I call actions, attitudes, and behaviors. And this is based on my own experience as well as working with a lot of super successful startup executives. And so that book was a, a lot of fun and very different than high-velocity digital marketing. And were any of those trades hard work? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like in the high velocity, in the, the be a startup superstar, at that time I was working full time. So I got up and actually wrote that book from 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. pretty much every day for five months. And so, but it was fun. I loved it. I didn't sleep much, but that's what you do when you are passionate about something, I think. That is was, true. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So, now what are you like what are you doing outside of what you do every day like what are your crazy passions hobbies i love to travel i just uh got back from a few weeks on a safari in kruger, kruger national forest it was incredible love to eat good food drink good wine i don't know if those could see me but i love to get on my boat jet skis or motorcycle help professionals grow in their career and spend time with my grandkids. Okay, there you go. How many grandkids do you have? Two. That's awesome. How old are they? Four and two. <laughs> okay, that's lovely. Yeah, and you they're... still love helping startups. Oh, I love it. Like I, I, I do that. I consult with a number of companies to help them in their marketing and not full time anymore, but um, but do that part time. So I have time to do all the other stuff. That's awesome. OK, so give us a plug about your book. Remind people the name of it, where to get it. I highly recommend it. Yeah. So the book, again, is called High Velocity Digital Marketing. The other book is called Be a Startup Superstar. Both are available wherever you would buy books online like Amazon. And anyone could get in touch with me through my website, which is stephenmarkcahan.com. And what about LinkedIn? Send me a message in LinkedIn. I, I usually respond. That would be fine as well. Okay, awesome. Stephen, thank you so much. Is there any last word of advice, word of wisdom, or nugget that you want to give our listeners about high velocity digital marketing and you know, give them the impetus to change because they're going to have to. I think that particularly as 
the economy uh, sort of wavers from good to not quite as good, and certainly it will come back, that being great online is absolutely the key to successful business growth. And if you want to learn how to do that, I think high velocity digital marketing will help you. And I'd love to hear everyone's feedback or anyone who decides they want to purchase the book. And I will say that you do truly mean that. I have experienced that for sure. I absolutely do. Stephen, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I learned a lot. I took notes. There's some things that you said in here that made me understand your book better. So love it. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.